And here we are. Welcome back to More Than A Lumpy Jumper. This week, we are talking about speaking from your heart and the struggles many of us have to do this. What stops us? How can we learn to practice? Why would we want to? And how does any of this translate to the workplace? So come and join us in being a heart speaker. Hey, Bobby. We're talking about speaking from the heart this week, right? We are indeed. So how do you feel about that? I'm hoping that we're on the same wavelength, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case, does it? I think sometimes it's more interesting to have divergent views. So um, I guess we're going to see. I'm interested to maybe understand where you're coming from on this. I have looked at it from the idea of authenticity and what that means in terms of communicating authentically. I know that one of our first episodes last season was about communication and we had a lot of feedback asking that we went into a little bit more detail because there was a lot crammed into the episode, I guess. So this is sort of us picking out one little bit of the communication discussion. I was just smiling when you said, I wonder if we're going to be on the same wavelength or not. Because often we are, but equally this could be us having come at it from entirely different angles. It's always a bit exploratory and I love that. And that was me speaking from the heart. However, I guess where I started from was why we struggle with it. You know, that business about how to verbalize what you're feeling. And I guess where I came at it to start with was if I think we'll get into this about, dare I use the word, journey, like something out of X Factor, but my journey to learn to speak from the heart or speak from, I think we in our first episode called it truth, was that often people don't get to speak from that place because they don't know what it is that they're really feeling. So in which case it's too tricky to verbalize. So they don't. It's just one example of why people wouldn't verbalize. I think there's a, there's a whole host of other types of reasons why we don't, but that's where I started from. That if you don't have any idea of what it is that you're feeling or know how to give language to it, you don't. Yeah, I think that that's right. When I was trying to think about why I struggle with authentic communication or talking about what I am really feeling or what I really need, I think that that's, that really is one of those issues is that, that trying to express what you need when you haven't really thought about it or reflected on it well, or you're not used to asking for what you need, I think is one problem. The one that resonated with me or the word that came up in my head when I was thinking about this was fear. I think that for many people, obviously I'm sort of now projecting my feelings onto the whole of the world, that many people are afraid to express how they feel for fear of rejection or for fear of ridicule. For a number of reasons that we get into our head, if I say this, people will think, And it comes back to some of the elements we've discussed before about people pleasing. And again, for me, having worked with a lot of women who struggle in very male dominated workplaces, a lot of it is a fear of either being seen to be too clever or too funny, because obviously watching on social media, men lose their shit over women not being funny or not being allowed to be funny. I always see the comment when a female comedian's on social media and 
the comments which are almost exclusively from men that are so horrible sexually, you know, using sexually violent language or denigrating women saying, well, that's not funny. I don't think that's funny. And it's all men because there is this sort of issue about whether or not women should be funny and clever and, and how it impacts on how men feel and their egos. I'm mm. digressing a little bit. And I don't think that you are digressing because the fact is you're probably not going to like this, but I'm going to say anyway, you could tip that on its head. And here's what I think. So you take a comedian and they're speaking. I often wonder, here's just a question, because we don't know one way or the other, are they speaking from the heart or are they using comedy out of fear or out of vulnerability? And then if you think about the response that they get from a man, are they speaking from the heart with their level of anger and fury about it? Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just saying that all of it, all of it, could be speaking from the heart, but because they, well, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with it, but I'm just, I'm just saying, how do you ever know if somebody is speaking from the heart? Because I think that there is this idea of humor and there is this idea of fear, whichever comes first. I'd also written down vulnerability, but I'd also written down independence. I'd, I don't need anybody else to be involved in my emotions. They're mine. Thanks very much. There's the fixer. You're much better able to listen to somebody else's problems rather than voicing your own. You've been taught to silence your emotions, which goes back perhaps to something of what you're saying, depending on what our landscape have been as to why we don't actualize, verbalize things. But I think that that's where it comes into that when you think about men who are venting, have they really had the opportunity to reflect on what they think? Equally, why is somebody covering up what they really are feeling potentially with humour. I'm just turning on its head, so I don't know what you think about it. Mm. I struggle with that a little because men who are comedians are also not necessarily speaking from their heart. There's a reason for comedy. There's a pain yep. often comes from comedy, but men are allowed to be funny. You don't see it, this absolute stream of invective from women about male comedians because in our world, men have been expected to be or allowed to be funny they're allowed to maybe hide their emotions through comedy but women who are putting their head above the parapet are met with this and I I would challenge you to go and have a look at the comments section where a female comedian who is talking about making some joke about being a woman or being a mother or childbirth or the menopause or menstruation talking about their experience and making it into a comedy show to see that I'd say 99% of the people going, that's just not fucking funny. She should go make a sandwich, whatever the comment is. Is it almost exclusively male? Because women aren't allowed to be funny. Whereas Michael McIntyre talks about being a dad and various things all the time. And Key Gervais talks about all kinds of things that may not, I might not find funny, but women don't feel the need to then personalise the attack on those male comedians, unless they are, I don't know, Barry Manick. I was going to say Barry Manilow, but he's a singer. There was a, you know, there were various 1970s comedians who were just I really think, kind of I think you're talking, Yeah, I think you're talking about Bernard Matthews, actually. Or was he the turkey man? Uh, anyway, it Manning. doesn't matter. Manning. <laughs> Bernard Manning, maybe. But maybe he was speaking from the heart too. And, and I don't doubt that there's a lot of anger 
in men about some of their loss of privilege or perceived loss of privilege in this new world. But just the fact that women are being attacked for making a joke about bleeding is, I just find it extraordinary. But I do take the point that it's really difficult to understand or to know when people are truly speaking from the heart. And I would really love to hear more about, you gave some examples of why people don't or what limits them. You gave a list of them and I'd really like to dig down into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that, you know, one of the ones that we've actually talked about here, because again, I'm not decrying what is actually said about males or females. If I try and keep it, that this could apply to both. What we're talking about with comedy, so here's just one, is potentially it's easier to put on an act. And I'm not saying just within comedy, I think just in general, to actually not verbalise what's really going on, you can layer something on top of it. And comedy or putting on an act is one way of masking what your heart is really saying. So yeah, some of the, I mean, I think you and I both do that, don't, don't we, Bobby? I mean, we've, yeah. we both play the clown or make a joke about something that actually is quite painful or deflect when if somebody says something cruel or hurtful rather than calling it out, sort of make a joke of it. There's, there's flippancy, but my mum my always used to refer to me as a self-deprecator that I was always sort of like taking a little bit of the shine of things for whatever reason by basically taking the piss out of myself. And it was a safety mechanism in case anybody else took the piss out of me, which people seem to do all the time. But I set myself up for that because sometimes it is easier to do that. And I think if we are talking about where either of us have come from is that by putting on the act and the other things that I was talking about in terms of independence, fixing, always being the person who's a little upbeat. There sometimes comes a point in time where your heart wants to scream out, yeah, but what about me? What about how I'm feeling? But if you have created this shaping, this character, persona, habit, whatever you want to call it, to mask what your heart is really saying, it's quite tricky to then start verbalising how you're really feeling because you've done so much to layer against it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, there were times, certainly times where I, I've been accused of flippancy so much. I remember during my time at Blamford at the Special to Arms School, Raw Signals training for young officers, one of the things that I was constantly told off about was flippancy. And it was a protection mechanism. I could never say, hey, I did this well, or I've been elected to do this thing and I'm really proud of it. You would say, oh God, yeah, you know, some idiot being conned by the fact that I put in some bullshit thing and they've chosen me and I know it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> is the sort of pre-preparation for mocking or failure or somebody else saying it instead so you say it before they do. Do you think you still do it at all? I think that there is a tendency. I'm aware of it now though and I do try to be much more... So I do it far less than I, than I did. I've been surrounded by groups of people who have spent time saying you need to be prouder of the things that you do or that you can do and actually it's like it's one of those I'm actually learning by teaching because I spend so much time working with people and doing the do as I say not as I do and then having to be very very self-aware that actually I am doing the exact same things that I'm sort of working with people not to do and so I then have to be better 
Yeah. Does that mean? It does, because I, I coach. To be coached, coaching and teaching, you know, in certain environments is very much a two-way street. And I, and I may well have said on a recording before, I sometimes look at the sky wondering if I'm going to be struck by a bolt of lightning when I've said something that really I should be schooling myself in. And I think similar to you, although, you know, there, there has been the, the flippancy, I think for me, and this is about maturity as well, isn't it? Again, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that I don't go damning myself with what I'm about to say. But Jesus Christ, I was one hell of a drama queen when I was younger. And I guess if you talk to my family, they go, it's dramas. And I can be, I can be really overwrought with emotion sometimes. And that is because if I have swallowed back or not spoken what I'm really feeling, it can become a powder keg. Mm, yeah. Because you're just, you're just holding it back the whole time. And so, you know, when I use some of those examples of for me was that emotions didn't have a place in my family. You know, no crying, no over, over exerting yourself from an emotional front, you know, stiff up a lip and, and all the rest of it and crack on. And that dumbing it down led to a number of explosions as a child. And as I say, it's still within me now. If I find myself not finding a way to, I'm going to use the word, safely say how I'm really feeling, it can get a little bit out of hand. And I'm just wondering, because you used the word fear at the beginning. I'm wondering sometimes if I don't do it because I am scared of it being an explosion, causing unnecessary hurt. Because because the other thing that I found is that, I mean, I, Jesus, I can be vicious if I've let it stay held back. And then, of course, yeah. it comes out, it comes out something really ghastly. And, mm. and what, you've, what you've been attempting potentially to avoid by not voicing your own in case of hurting other people, you damn well hurt other people. It's interesting you say that, Bobby, because... Again, and maybe I have been sort of being a bit flippant when I've said this to other people. Actually, I definitely have been being flippant when I've said this to other people. One of an example I gave about this, like this idea of saying the unspeakable thing, the thing that you can't take back, the thing that is really hurtful and really damaging to relationships because it's all sort of curdled up and becomes this explosive thing. I've had always joked with people that the reason that my husband and I are still together is because we don't speak the same language. And so my example had been that we both speak a second language as our common language. We both speak French because he speaks Arabic as his first language and I speak English and neither of us, although it's changing, Mohammed's English is improving every single day and my Arabic isn't. But the fact that we have to translate everything in our heads before we say it means that we have to think about the words that we use when we speak. And while it might not be the anger coming out, we can still be angry with each other, but we can't say the, that thing that you, the moment it comes out of your mouth, you really wish you hadn't said it in that way. Yeah. And that it's the one thing that that person will never unhear. So I've joked in a slightly serious, jokey way that it has forced us to communicate in a more thoughtful way or use the words in a more thoughtful way. Because, and sometimes because I just don't know the words in French to say the really vile, horrible thing. So, or we have to, you know, literally go on to Google Translate and, and look at and say, I am 
so angry with you about that. And it just allows you that amount of time to put the words into a form that expresses how you feel, but isn't cruel. It's, it's, taking, it's taking the breath. You know, it's interesting. Just in that example that you give there, when I was trying to work out how to articulate, if you really desired to speak from the heart, what are the best things to do if you're struggling with it? And I can't remember where I read it now, but there were four things and it was tune in, strike a balance, be clear on what you want to say and encourage a response, staying with your own felt sense of it. And what that second language to speak in allows you to do is mm. all four of those things. Yeah. And so you know, part of me, which is, you know, Mohammed's learning English and he's, we, we have more conversations in English than in French, but there still is that time when we are frustrated or angry or tired, where we have to go back to French because for Mohammed speaking English is tiring and he can't express himself often in the way that he wants to. And so we, yeah, I wonder how we'll get on well, once he's fluent in English. But I think I think but I think that, that the habit's been formed, is it? If you recognize those four things in how you have an argument, if I think about people that I argue with, be it at home or in the workplace, well, interestingly, isn't it? I mean, you know, at home I'll blast and then be like, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Whereas in the workplace, I don't remember a time when I've ever blasted off. I might have gone and yelled and thrown things around in an office somewhere and then come back out, but you give yourself space. And that's mm. that's the other that's the other thing that but I I think for me in the past, I've often given myself space and then not said anything. So it's still there mm, yeah, stewing. Yeah. Whereas yeah. being able to know that I'm a blaster and that there's places that can't work and so I have to go work out. But don't, don't degrade how you felt by going, oh, it's gone now, so it doesn't matter. And finding a way of going back in and saying, look, can I, can I just talk to you about that conversation that we had? Because there's something still bothering me about it. And I just want to explain to you how it made me feel. I think that's as relevant in the workplace, if not more so, than it is at home. Yeah, although I do think that for the most part, I think generally people are kinder to their work colleagues than they are to their loved oh, ones, yeah. dare I say it. But oh, I forgot what I was going to say now. I think it was along the lines of this. Actually, no, I do remember now. Journaling came up into my head again here. This idea of not letting it go and not letting it fester and we've talked about journaling a lot that relates to a lot of topics so journaling seems to be sort of this panacea for a lot of development a lot of leadership skills a lot of life skills is to be able to journal and you can then lay it out in this way that you talked about this reflective way about what it is that's bothering you so that you don't let go of it that you you are like okay I can remember you know even if you have to wait a week before you get an opportunity to bring it up but it's still there, laid out exactly how it made you feel, why it's bothering you, what the impact is on you. All of those things that we talk about in um, giving good feedback. You know, people have different ones. The one I've always been brought up on was coin. C for, C for context. And then O for the observation. So it's not you did this. I saw that you were shouting or I noticed that you were angry or I noticed that you were upset. And then impact eye for impact the impact it had on you and that made me feel that made me not want to talk anymore that made me feel disrespected or whatever it made you feel or whatever impact it had on the work situation 
you shouting in that meeting meant that Laura, who was going to do her presentation about this really cool thing that she's really proud of, she didn't get the opportunity to do that. And next step. So there's this sort of being able to lay things out and sort of rationalize them a little bit more so that you can take that breath and then you can bring it up at a time where people's emotions are maybe less high and have a reasonable and authentic conversation about what it did to you and why it's important. I love that. I'm just sitting here because I agree with you that sometimes we can be so much kinder at work than we are at home. How often after the event are we likely to use a coin scenario at home as we would at work? Because I can definitely see going back in and using coin in work. Do we go back and do the same at home or do we just let it go and move on with the potential for it to happen again? Yeah, I think that you're right. I think in work, we get all this coaching and discussion about, oh, and how to have a feedback conversation, how to, you know, have a professional conversation rather than a screaming row. And, you know, some people do in work and, and we've had conversations as well. But home, it does seem a little bit clinical. It doesn't have to be exactly in that way, but that's sort of explaining why the behavior upset or hurt and what the impact it has. And it is quite a vulnerable thing to do is to say, look, I know that we didn't end that conversation well. And you know me that I'm one of these people who festers. I'm really trying not to let this become an issue that results in me having a screaming row with you because you didn't put the washing out next month when actually it's all about this thing that happened last week, which we didn't resolve. And so it kind of takes both parties to build that as a sort of habit. Oh, absolutely. And from my coaching perspective, the coaching piece that I do is called integral development because it is about learning new habits that you can use at work and at home. But you have to practice in both places. And so absolutely, you know, you wouldn't bring something back up a month after the event. But I think it is catching it in the moment and not letting it go whichever place that you're actually in. Because that holding on to your sense but making space for the others as well is 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 how you learn to articulate stuff together rather than it being in a red fog sort of scenario, be that at work or at home. But to to make the communication better, and I'll go back to the fact that you're you've been working harder because you've been doing it in another language. But it, I think it makes for clearer articulation eventually, because you're doing it in a in a calmer way because you're having to take those breaths in between. Whether it's to look at Google Translate, so you could still be furious, but it takes the steam out of it a bit. Yeah, and I, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna agree that with Mohammed that if we ever have an argument, we have to still still have our arguments in French. We might do a timeout. Go okay. We're in French now, right? Okay. Well, just move into French mode because that's our default position for having a row. I mean, maybe we should try. Maybe we should try it at work as well. That would be interesting. But the fact is, is that work can be bloody awful on occasions. And if people go around just trying to be polite to each other all the time, I'm not meaning that you go around mm. disrespecting or impolite, but that, oh, it's all all okay and not getting to the juiciness of the forming, storming, norming, performing or whatever other jargon bollocks we want to use. But actually some level of altercation isn't a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think you're right there. I think that this, that maybe is is the point that I kind of missed to make about this fear is that often people have a fear of conflict, that somehow conflict means things, everything has fallen apart, 
you know, no marriage or no relationship is going to be without conflict. It's it would be weird when people say we never argue. I just don't, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't understand how okay. that that's good, not good normal. luck with that. It's not normal. <laughs> and at work, you know, this fear of of there being conflict as, as if somehow that's the team has disintegrated. No one can work in these scenarios, and it's actually making managing conflict. So being still respectful during periods of disagreement. We always disagree. If we don't disagree, then nothing's ever going to get done. There's never going to be anything created, no innovation, no problem solving. How can you do any of those things? How can you, you know, if something goes wrong and you're going to have an after action sort of brainstorm, if everyone agrees this groupthink idea, then it's actually catastrophic for organizations. So yeah. conflict is good disagreement is good i think maybe it's because we use conflict to mean war and to mean violence but so we can maybe turn it into disagreement is fine and feeling that someone else has disrespected you I, i'll give you an example because i did some trainer trainers course last year with a view to I can't remember the word begins with an f managing groups and helping groups sort of work together facilitation and, uh, facilitation that was it so a trainer trainer for facilitators for groups of activists. And it was really interesting talking to the facilitators. And they talked about the fact that at the end of the day, they had this session together without the rest of the group where they talked about impacts. And that it was the time where they did a variation of the coin feedback was if there had been an issue with a facilitator who had stepped on the other facilitator during their work during a session so if one was leading and the other one had sort of then just said something or or interrupted at a point that was unhelpful they raised it and talked about it in a in a respectful and dignified way and so in this sort of caring and courageous way so being courageous to say actually I disagree with you or actually this is a problem for me but in a caring way so that you're not deliberately trying to hurt so you're not saying you're a bastard because you did this saying this happened, it was not okay for me. And I would like you to understand that so that we can find a way that it doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, and having done a bit of facilitation myself, what it prompts me always, one of the things that I was thinking about and what we might talk about in this session was that I, I do think that speaking from the heart is a leadership behavior. And I think it takes me back to whether we like the term or not, but servant leadership, which came across a lot. Yeah you know, from the military perspective, because for me, when I read about servant leadership, it talks about talking from the heart to the heart. So what you're doing is you're, you are tuning into other people's aspirations, their values and everything else besides, because it's not just about what you want. It's about what everybody wants. And I think that that's the guise of the facilitator as well, to know the moment, to stop and go, what do you think? So you're bringing in those other parts so that everybody has a part to play in that. So if you think a bit from a facilitation, but I think from a team and then a leader of a team, everybody's heartfelt voice should be heard. I came across a quote from a, from a lady called Betty Bender. And she says, when people go to work, they shouldn't have to leave their hearts at home. I firmly agree with that, that that people should be able to speak up, speak truth, disagree uh, across the board in with leaders to speak up and say that and leaders to listen. 
because speaking from the heart requires active listening as well. And we've talked about active listening in the past and I'm sure we will again, but it's key because everybody's point is valid. And just while I'm on a bit of a roll, I think the other place that I have found the importance and the impact of listening and speaking from the heart is when I've had to deal with difficult conversations. Because they're not difficult conversations, Bobby, they're honest conversations. You told me that. All right. Sorry, love. Thanks for just schooling me for the umpteenth time. I'll get my own back. You told me that. I'm, I'm just reminding you of the schooling you did to me. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Rigato. So honest conversations. You're absolutely right. I'm only joking with you. But so I think about back to my workplaces. So it was the honest conversations, but often when there were disciplinaries or grievances, all of the, the tricky type conversations, but they're only tricky. And I tell you, I tell you why they are so tricky. Here we go. Another of Bobby's HR rants, switch the volume down. If you don't want to hear this, you go into a conversation like that, where it is absolutely imperative that people are able to have their say and really be listening to each other. And what do most HR departments do? They offer you a frigging script. And they offer a script because people are nervous, we're back to fear again, about saying the wrong thing. And I would often, because of my position in an organisation, not get my mitts on any of this going on until it came to an appeal. And people would produce a script for me and I'd tell them very kindly that I wasn't going to be using it because this was a moment where you had to really listen and you had to get into a situation where you could have the other person hear what you were saying as well. Whilst these things had gone on, the person may well have been in the wrong, but you can't go into it with that, you know, with a judgment or how this is going to roll out. You've got to listen to see what was going on. Now, sometimes I would uphold the appeal, other times I wouldn't. But more often than not, what I was listening to was a whole host of things that really shouldn't have happened from the managerial, yeah. from the managerial position or other. And that had been wholly missed because people weren't listening because they were busy just remembering what next to say on the script. How is that speaking from the heart? You know, it's a prime example for me in the workplace where you really need to be in that position, not working in a second language, but in the space of working in a second language to really hear what's going on and to communicate in the same way. And I love the fact that you say that. I think we may well have to do an episode on active listening or hearing or understanding. I saw recently a little video snippet of Louis Theroux, who I'm a great fan of. I, I have a little bit of a, a crush on, on Louis Theroux. But he was answering questions from, I don't know who, sort of being videoed and there's a whole load of questions that come to him. And one of them was, why do you always look so confused when you're interviewing people? And he promptly looked confused and said, I don't think I am confused. He said, I'm just listening really, really hard. Then watched him again. I was like, yeah, you know, that's why he's such a great interviewer and why he gets people to say things to open up so much is that he's a really good example of an authentic communicator. And I know that there's an element of inauthenticity in terms of it's an entertainment program, but he certainly comes across as genuinely interested in everybody he's speaking to, whether they are, you know, some of people who have been horribly violent in their life and are maybe doing things that we would say are awful. 
like challenge to anyone, go and watch Louis Theroux interviewing people. And he is intently listening to what is being said rather than necessarily planning. You know, he hasn't got a script of all the questions that he's got to ask. I'm going to have to go and watch some more of his interviews again now to see some of the, the techniques he uses in terms of being genuinely interested and speaking, yeah, authentically, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think it'd be a great episode. What I do know is that level of presenteeism so that you're listening, not necessarily just to respond. And I think that that's where I have the distinction between head and heart. So we know what our education system is like, or just Western Western education or whatever it might be that has the priority been about thinking in terms of using our head, which is one of the things that has dispelled us being able to articulate what our emotion, our heart really looks like or feels like or sounds like, you know, when, it, when we do decide to speak from there. But the problem is, is that more often than not, when we're listening, and I use it in adverted commas, we're busy articulating our response be it with a script or what's happening in our head automatically rather than listening from a different place and then going from there I think many people are very guilty of that and I think that it, it's it's associated a little with needing to be right or needing to win yeah in particularly in our in discussions or disagreements this need to be right I saw something that's pinged into my head recently, which was about this idea that you don't always have to be right, even if you know, know that you're right. But in terms of discussions and arguments, winning all the time is not the most important thing, especially if we kind of view every interaction with a human as some sort of zero-sum game with a winner and a loser. I won this one. Yeah, coming out of the, you know, I, I won that argument. And no consideration that you may have left that person in pieces with some of the things that you've said. So this need to be right and this need to win is this, it drives this, this thing that we do where we are always thinking about the next thing to say, the next brilliant, clever, intelligent point to make. Rather than listening and hearing, why is that person saying that? Why is this person expressing themselves in this way? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I have something to learn. And I, I do think that there's a, there's a lot of that. And you see it on TV, you know, TV interviews and all kinds of things. It's nobody's listening to each other. They're just trying to score their points so that they can add them up at the end of the conversation and see who won. But your point about also about presenteeism, I really like that point, Bobby. And it, it also, weird, you know, I'm seeing all the things that I've been <laughs> seeing on social media or on some of the the research that I've been doing this week for lots of other things there's a great video by Simon Sinek where he talks about the mobile phone even if you turn it off if you've still got it in your hand when you're having a conversation the barrier it puts up because it, it sends a message doesn't it the phone yeah. is still in, so important that I can't put it away during this conversation and the same when you're at dinner and people put their mobile phone, they turn them off, but they still put them on the table. So they're still yeah. in, it's a message. I am not completely present. I'm not giving my whole self to this interaction because the phone is still there and I can still pick it up and, or I might have it in my hand when I'm talking. It 
just as and I haven't thought about that. I'm very aware. It annoys the shit out of me when people have their phones or on their phones during a meal. It really annoys me. And so people putting them on the table, I was like, yeah, okay, they're not on their phone. But yeah, when it, when he said it, I was like, yeah, actually, it's still sending that message that it's still here. I'm not fully present. Yeah, yeah, and and. And I can't remember it because presenteeism, I think if I, because I, I was using the wrong word there, is about always having to be in the office as such. And I don't know if it's presenteeism or presencing. I may well be splitting hairs, but it is about presence. If you've got a phone there, because there's always the possibility that you're willing to be interrupted rather than giving somebody your full, full attention. If we go all the way back to what stops some of us from speaking from the heart or been in touch with how we're really feeling. I think the media, that you know, that the phone, the mobile phone, media, or anything like that, is is another version of keeping yourself away from yourself. You know, there's all of these things yeah. that stop speaking from the heart because we've just we've just found different ways of dumbing down on what's really going on. Yeah, I um saw this reference or a piece of research done by a he's a psychologist and psychotherapist called Sidney Girard. He died several years ago, several decades ago. But he concluded that 85% of people's happiness comes from positive interactions with those people in their lives. And 85% of unhappiness comes from an inability to get on with others. And I think following on from your point, or we extrapolate it, if you can't be authentic, either with yourself, which I guess is where you need to start, or with others, then it's really difficult to interact positively with other people because we know when things are inauthentic normally. It's, it, it, we, we, you get a feeling there's just, you know when things are not authentic. You know when people are gritting their teeth and not saying something. You just get a vibe on it. You know, any of us who've been brought up with passive-aggressive parents or partners, or who are passive aggressive themselves, and I'm sticking my hand up right there, will understand that, yeah, I'm still going to smile through this, but I'm fucking annoyed with you right now. But people know it. And yeah, maybe we, they will, are quite happy to go, okay, but I don't want to poke that bear. But I do think that inauthenticity really impacts on our ability to actually positively interact with people. I absolutely agree with you. And I, you know, the facilitator in me, you smell it. You sense it. You also know when you've said something that has made somebody uncomfortable, that they might be. I, I can watch them now in a room. Sorry, anyone who's going to be facilitated by me in the future, but I call it out and I call it out nicely. I'm not challenging them, but I'll often say to some, you look like you're about to break into song or you, you look like you've got something to say. Do you, you know, I'm happy to pause. Is there anything that you want to add? And of course, sometimes people go, no, 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 that's fine. Actually giving somebody permission to, to speak up, I think it's really important because they might not want to do it or volunteer it. And that's when it's worthwhile giving them the opportunity to do it. You can see it in exactly the same way that you're saying that people will sense if you're swallowing something down. I think in the opposite direction, you can see it in somebody else as well. Because if you've been the person who's done it, you can spot it a mile off in somebody else. So I'm almost using my own experience to go, come on, once you get started, it's not as difficult as it, as it might feel. On that point of spotting or being able to see the signs, which is a big part of that sort of authentic communication is sort of not just listening, but 
watching and understanding the context and empathizing with the person that's speaking to you. Remote communication, and obviously that's a massive thing now in so many organizations, this sort of remote communication or remote managing teams. What are your opinions on maybe the difficulties or solutions to being able to continue to communicate authentically, but where you are not in the same room. I think sometimes yeah. picking up the signs for me is, is more difficult, especially if nobody turns on their freaking video. From my perspective, I think I feel I do the same things. So when I'm facilitating in a room and I'll be watching for visual single, uh, signals, you know, you can sort of like see sometimes when people are looking a bit uncomfortable or they may well have started to disengage, whatever's, whatever's going on with what the, the topic actually is. And I think we were saying about, you know, people often turn their video screens off and we did get a bit video weary during COVID, etc., etc. But either way, if someone's camera is on or isn't, I think I do the same things that we were talking about before in terms of tuning in, finding the balance, being clear about what I mean to say and encouraging response. And I think encouraging response for me when you're working virtually is the main thing. So if I wanna make sure that I've been clear, I will check in with people about, have I been clear? Have I made sense? Do you have any, do you have any questions around that? You know, what do you think? What are your responses to that? So I make sure that rather than it being one way, I offer up the space mm. for response. And there's part of me that goes, if people don't want to respond, I have given you the opportunity. And it's all about the opportunity and then to sit mm. and listen to it. But I equally think from an intuition perspective, those people who aren't responding or saying that it's all fine, We've had that conversation about being fine when you're not fine. I may well check in afterwards, mm. after the meeting, and, and then by telephone so that they haven't got to be face-to-face -face with me, but saying, you were quiet today. Are you okay? Is there anything going on? Have you had chance to reflect on what we talked about? Because I think that, you know, while I'm very much sort of like an active responder, mm. there are other people who need to have time to think about it afterwards. And I think it's just... You know, having got close enough to your people that you're working with or whatever might be to go, someone hasn't shown up today, whether they've been on the call or not, I'm mm. going to check in. I think that there's an added sort of work a little bit harder in terms of those skills that we need to have when we're face to face, but we need to escalate them a little when we're working remotely because some of the signals are dimmed down a little especially when people don't turn on their screens and I know there are lots of reasons why people may not want to turn their screens on well, you know for me it's mainly because I'm still in my pajamas and my hair's all over the place but <laughs> or there's a cat crawling around crawling all around me so yeah I, I think that it's just important for people to acknowledge that the remote work just brings an extra facet to the skills that we're already already discussing we spoke recently about the well-being recovery action plan. You know, what do people want? What do people need? And I think it's incumbent on all of us, not just the leader, but on all of us, that if the first time we speak our truth, speak from our heart, is about what we really need, 
what we're comfortable yeah. with. So if you don't want your video on, it's okay. You don't have to have your video on, but it's not a, a reason to then not yeah. to engage. Yeah. Because both people then have to try harder if you're not getting the visual signals. But also knowing the people who are the reflectors, whatever it might be. But you you work with that and you're right. I think that it, it requires that bit more effort, but it's worthwhile yeah. in the end. And I'm struck just by the a quote that I saw earlier from Cheryl Sandberg. You know, I, I hear a lot of people complaining about, oh, bloody Gen Z, they never turn their videos on. Um, and as if that's the main issue that's the biggest problem. And she said, leaders should strive for authenticity over perfection. So the meeting doesn't have to be perfect. Being the perfect leader, it's much more about being that authentic grittiness or that realness. Absolutely, absolutely. So I have a quote to end with, and this is from somebody called Lance Secretan. Again, I hope that that's been said correctly, but it goes like this. Leadership is not a formula or a programme. It's a human activity that comes from the heart and considers the hearts of others. It's an attitude, not a routine. Love that. Thank you, Bobby, and thank you, Lance, whoever and wherever you are. We'll find out and put it in the resources later. And lovely chatting to you, as always. Thanks, Bridge. Thanks, Bridge. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about any of the things we've discussed in this episode, we've provided links on our website and on the Spotify podcast page. There's even a little poll if you fancy joining in. And next week, on the cusp of Valentine's Day, we'll be talking about love. No, not the gushy romantic type, but more about can love really show up in leadership? And does it really have a place? Join us for being a lovely leader. See you then.